0: Turn over to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We'll read verses 12 through 17 together. John 15, verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friend's. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your mighty and awesome Word. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that You would teach each and every one of us. Open our eyes to see. Open our ears to hear. We so long to not be a people who are ever listening but never hearing. Please open our ears. And Lord, we don't want your truth just bounce off of hardened heart. So we want you to break up our hearts, soften the ground so we can really receive from you today. Make us attentive. Give us focus. May this be our act of worship during this time as we attend to your word together and listen intently. May you work mightily in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I'm sure we are all familiar with the literature of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. R. Tolkien. Even if you are not an avid reader, I would be surprised if you were unacquainted with those two names. For in recent years, even The, uh, the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and The Chronicles of Narnia have been made into multi-part movies that have made millions of dollars and have achieved great popularity. But I would hazard a guess that not as many of you are familiar with the fact that those two men enjoyed a wonderful friendship. And were it not for that friendship, we might not have books about Middle Earth and Narnia. In a book entitled Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, The Gift of Friendship, Colin Dury tells the story of how these two men met. How they discovered a common love for mythical tales. And how they pledged together to bring those stories into the mainstream of public reading. They noticed that the tales, which young and old had once loved and relished, had begun to become part of a portion of literature called children's books. The myths that had once been enjoyed by all capturing and communicating the important things in life, reminding those who listened of who we are and what the world is like, had been relegated to children alone. Tolkien and Lewis both shared the belief that telling stories of myth and legend could be a medium through which a first taste of the Christian gospel's true myth could be introduced to people otherwise who were biased against Christianity. They believed that there was an avenue here whereby barriers to an initial hearing of the great story of the gospel might be circumvented. Tolkien and Lewis met each other as young professors at an Oxford faculty meeting in 1926, the meeting would be the beginning of a wonderful friendship, which would then in turn cultivate their works of literary art. Works that, even though they have scarcely been around 100 years, are already being considered classics today. Thurius explains in an interview with Christianity Today how Tolkien impacted Lewis. This is what he said. Lewis, although he used a very rational knockdown technique in his rhetorical approach to philosophical questions, was a deeply imaginative man who regarded his imaginative self as his most basic self. But as a brilliant young man who had decided that the Christian faith of his upbringing was intellectually untenable, Lewis had no way of bringing together the imaginative side of his nature with his rational side. His rational side told him that while stories might serve to amuse, they couldn't very well teach you about the things that really mattered. What Tolkien did was to help Lewis see how the two sides, reason and imagination, could be integrated. During the two men's night conversation on the Addison Walk in the grounds of Magdalen College, Tolkien showed Lewis how the two sides could be reconciled, and he showed it in the Gospel narratives. The Gospels had all the qualities of great human storytelling, but they portrayed a true event God the storyteller entered into his own story in the flesh. And he brought a joyous conclusion from a tragic situation. Suddenly, Lewis could see that the nourishment he had always received from great myths and fantasy stories was just a taste of the greatest story. And that story wasn't a fiction, but true. That story of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Dury has also explains how Lewis had an impact on Tolkien. Tolkien was a private man who, when he met Lewis, had written his mythic tales for a private audience. He had very little confidence that they could speak to a wider one. But from the beginning of their relationship, Lewis encouraged his friend to finish and then publish his stories. He delighted to hear Tolkien Read chapters of his epic trilogy as he completed them at meetings of their Oxford reading group called the Inklings. The Tol- and, that, and Tolkien was immensely encouraged by those meetings. As a result of them, it spurred him on in the writing that he was doing. Why do I spend some time at the beginning of the story talking about this relationship? Because this is what friendships do God has created us to work together. We learned that together we can do far more than we can separately. And the benefits that rebound from our friendships with one another uh, comes to people even outside of the friendship. We've all benefited from the friendship of Tolkien and Lewis. They encouraged one another, yes. But as a result of the encouragement to one another, they produced works that today we still read. And whether you've been directly impacted by any of their works... If you haven't read Mere Christianity, you need to. If you ha- whether or not you've been directly impacted by them, you have been impacted by people who have been impacted. You've at least been indirectly impacted by the works of Lewis and Tolkien. Now, transitioning to our present day, Friday's Fourth of the July celebration, and this next week as we come into VBS, are two examples of how our friendships allow us to make a wider impact on the world around us. None of us has all knowledge. None of us has all talent. None of us has all ability to do everything. Our parade float involved leadership from my mom, Carol, artistic talents from Jackie, communication and tracks from the Kempers, servants like Taylor and Donnie and Steve willing to put a structure together, people willing to come and smile and sit on a float in a semi-not-so-hot weather, which is kind of nice, along with people walking and sometimes jogging alongside of the float, handing out tracks and candy and all the rest, along with wonderful kids saying, saying, in God we trust, as we went through the community. Vacation Bible School involves even more time and energy and an all-hands-on-deck commitment from our church. But it's these acts of service, these combinations of service and gospel truth and joyous friendship that make a huge impact on our community and it changes us as well. Jesus, in saving a people and commanding that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and then gifting us for service, has established the most beautiful community of friends. I am so delighted to pastor here. I can say with all honesty, I pastor in a church of my friends. And there's something very unique about that. There's something very precious about that. Speaking of friends, I appreciate Christian and Michael and Seth uh, preaching over these last few weeks, giving me the opportunity to go on vacation with my family and go to a conference. Ephesians 4 reminds us that among the gifts that Jesus has given to the church, he's given gifted men for the edification of the body and the building up of the body of Christ. And I'm thankful for the gifted men that God has given us here at our church, men who understand that they are to merely operate as conduits for God's truth and grace to be communicated. Today we return to the our harmony of the gospels. We're working roughly chronologically through the gospel material of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Remember that we come to the evening in which Jesus is about to be betrayed and arrested. So we're getting to the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry, but We've got lots of chapters to go still in our time together. The Gospels spend more time on the last week of Jesus' life than they do on virtually the rest of his life. There is so much for us to talk about and to look at. And here, we're in the midst of Jesus giving some last instructions to his disciples. It's quite possible that they are walking on pathways or roadways to the Garden of Gethsemane. They've left the upper room. They're on their way traveling. And what we saw last time was with you several weeks ago now was Jesus talking about the fact that He is the vine and we are the branches. It's possible that He was looking at a vine or grabbing a vine as He says that. And He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. As long as you abide in Me, there will be fruitfulness. And those who bear fruit, He's going to to prune to make even more fruitful. Here we come to verses 12 through 17 in a sermon entitled The Substance of Friendship. You see, right at the heart of this passage, right in the middle of it, smack dab in the middle of it, look at verse 15. Look to the middle of verse 15. But I have called you friends. I have called you friends. Wonder of wonders, Jesus has called us friends. How amazing. Not only has our Lord and Savior redeemed us, but He welcomes us as friends. William Barclay writes that the phrase, friend of the king or friend of the emperor, was a phrase that was utilized to describe a particular group that was given privileged access to the emperor or to the king. Sometimes these were men who made up his most trusted advisors, people he trusted beyond anyone else. They were given privileged access to the king such that they could even wake him up in the middle of the night if there was something that the king needed to know about. He says, I wonder if this is what is being pulled upon here. Jesus says, you are my friend's. I'm granting you that sort of access to Me. Jesus calls His disciples friends. All those who are Jesus' disciples, Jesus calls friends. And He calls His friends. He gives them a command. And it happens at the beginning and end of the text. Like verse 12, this is My commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Verse 17, this is what I command you, that you love one another. You see, Jesus calling us friends has implication then on our friendship with one another. For thematic reasons, I'd like to work backward through the text today. We're going to start at verses 16 and 17, then we'll move to verse 15, and then we'll move to verses 12 through 14. So we're going to move backward up the text. The first point I'd like to make is that friendship is a matter of choice. Friendship is a matter of choice. It's a matter of being chosen, chosen, sorry. and a matter of choosing. Friendship is a matter of choice. Friendship always involves purposeful decision to be with someone. Relationships are built upon choices. We choose to start friendships, and we choose to nourish friendships. Or we choose to avoid friendships. We make a choice. Jesus says in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. The word there, chose, It'll also be translated select or elect. Remembering Jesus' choice of us is a very humbling thing. It destroys pride because the initiative lies entirely with Jesus. I'm not great, but I was chosen by someone who is great. And his choice wasn't conditioned on something that he saw in me or something that he saw me do. It's not as a result of who I am or what I've done, but purely a result of who he is and what he has done. First John 410 in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. I had Deuteronomy seven read this morning. (laughs) What a great humbling reminder to Israel right there in Deuteronomy seven It's a similar kind of thing going on here. Jesus is doing the same thing for his disciples that God was doing for Israel back in Deuteronomy seven. Deuteronomy 7, what's the words there? The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. You were the fewest of them all. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore. That's why. In other words, pretty much what he's saying is God chose you because he chose you. Not because of something in you. Not because you were something great. Remember that, Israel, you were fewer than all the peoples. You were nothing great. And God chose you. Similarly here, Jesus says... Remember, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Besides just being true, the doctrine of election is important to be told because it has an important and necessary humbling effect on man. And it results in God receiving all the glory. It assures that grace is truly grace. Unmerited favor. Not because he saw something good in me. If it was because of something good in me, then there's a reason for me to boast. And now I have saved myself. I have, by my own works, achieved my salvation. By the way, that's every other... That's all the false religions. It's some variety of, do this and you'll be saved. Christianity alone stands saying, no, not by what you have done, but by what Jesus has done on your behalf. It assures us that grace is truly unmerited favor. God's free choice to save sinners rebounds to His glory alone. He will not share His glory. He receives it all. J.C. Ryle says it well. Election to eternal life is a truth of Scripture which we must receive humbly and believe implicitly. God must begin the work of grace in a man's heart or else a man will never be saved. Christ must first choose us and call us by His Spirit or else we shall never choose Christ. I love the way that's stated. Does a person, when they are converted, do they choose Jesus? Absolutely they do. But it's predicated on a prior choice. Who does the initial choosing? That's the point. What he's saying here, he says, we will never choose Christ if Christ didn't first choose us. We would never love Him if He didn't first love us. Beyond doubt. If not saved, we shall have none to blame but ourselves. But if we are saved, we shall certainly trace up the beginning of our salvation to the choosing grace of Christ. Now, while the doctrine of election has certainly been subject to much abuse today, a horrendous mischaracterization and a wrongful application, when it's understood rightly, it's an important safeguard and it is also a wonderful comfort. And if you have more questions about it, I'd love to sit and talk with you about it further. Then Jesus commands his followers, he says, love one another. Love one another. This is an expression of our love for him. There's an unbreakable connection between love for God and love for our fellow Christians. 1 John 4.20 If someone says I love God and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who doesn't love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Love for God shows itself in love for the brethren. And there's a certain commitment and loyalty that comes with that friendship, right? I mean, friendships are built on... I mean, the groundwork of friendships is the stuff of loyalty and commitment and... The idea of choosing and sticking no matter what, right? I mean, that's why it hurts so much when our closest friends abandon us. It hurts so much when we feel betrayed by those who are so close to us because we trust them and we care about them and there's this deep longing for commitment and loyalty and when it's broken, it hurts so badly. They a great illustration of friendship in the Bible of the relationship that exists between two women, Ruth, And Naomi, Ruth's husband had passed away, the son of Naomi. And Naomi was her mother-in-law. And Naomi is going to go back to the land that she came from. And Ruth chooses to stay with Naomi, to leave her own people, to travel off with her mother-in-law to a foreign land to her. To take, go away from what, maybe she didn't understand all the consequences of this at the beginning, but from false gods to the one true God. But her loyalty and commitment to Naomi is rewarded by God. God honors her loyalty. She won't leave Naomi's side. And God, in a marvelous way, provides a new husband for Ruth. We're called to show a similar loyalty to our brothers and sisters in Christ in obedience to our Lord and Savior Jesus, who has loved us beyond anything we can imagine When you talk about steadfast love, that's how we've been loved by God. We've we've become recipients of unconditional, unfailing, unending love. And then Jesus says at the very beginning of this passage, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another, but how? Just as I have loved you. That's quite a standard. I've got so many wonderful friends that have made such an impact in my life, I thought I'd just share one that perhaps many of you don't know. When I was in high school, my parents moved. We moved from just outside of Chicago down to Houston. I got to Texas as soon as I can. And I remember going to Kingwood High School, and it was a scary place for me. I went from the smallest public high school in Illinois. There was like 12 kids in my class to 777 in my class at Kingwood High School. And there was many other classes there at the school. Well, I had attended a church on one Sunday right shortly thereafter. And on Monday following that Sunday, there's a guy by the name of Brandon who saw me at the front of the class, of physics class. And he came up and he said, hey, I saw you at church. I just wanted to introduce myself and say hi. Brandon was quite popular at Kingwood High School. He played basketball. He started on the varsity team. He was one of those kind of, you know, in kids. And I was definitely an out kid. A nerd and all the rest. I know you can't imagine that now, but, you know, <laughs> that's definitely what I what I was and maybe continue to be. But anyway, I remember Brandon choosing to befriend me and it didn't stop with just a one day coming up and introducing himself he went out of his way to make me feel at home in a place where I felt very out of touch a place that felt very very different to me so much so that we would even go to Texas A&M together and be roommates in a dorm and then move out of the dorm into an apartment with a couple other guys we played intramural sports together we took classes together always one of the things I always loved about him is the guy could you know play basketball like nobody's business and when it came to like choosing players and stuff if there was like a whole bunch of people he'd always pick me and I stumped compared to the rest of the players but he did it because he loved me he cared about me you see friends make choices like that they make choices to strengthen the friendship they look for ways to invest in one another to care about the other to put their interests before your own May I encourage you to choose to work at relationships with people around you. Choose to pursue friendships with people. If for no other reason, if you're a Christian because Christ chose you, He pursued you. Purposefully share Christ with those who you befriend, whether to strengthen them in their already relationship with Jesus or to introduce them to Jesus for the first time. Friendship involves choosing and it involves mutual goals and fruitfulness. There is a sense of this in the text. Look look at this. It says, verse 16, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. In the lives of Lewis and Tolkien, there was a common interest and there was common passion and that fostered relationship between the two men. And there were common goals that they set out to accomplish. I mean, if their goal was to achieve literary status such that the idea of myth and legend becomes part of mainstream talking and reading, they accomplished the mission. Well, Jesus here says that He's going to see to His disciples' fruitfulness. He saved the people and then equipped them to do ministry. And for that ministry to be lived out in community, and he's going to see that they become fruitful and that their fruit endures. I want to stop there for just a second. Enduring fruit. Think of how many things that you're involved in right now that will not last. How many things are you doing in, the, in a given week that will not last? Now, some of those things are necessary consequences of life like laundry and dishes, which will get dirty again and need to be cleaned again. And the grass will grow and it will have to be cut again. And on and on the list of those sorts of things go. But even big expenditures and projects, whether at home or at work, they ultimately will not last. Buildings will crumble. Appliances will wear out. Furniture will need to be replaced. So many things are so temporary and we spend so much of our lives accumulating junk. And you're not taking any of it with you. Think about it for just a minute. How much of your time is invested in things that will truly last? I mean, eternally last. How many things will matter once you're dead? How many things are you doing right now that will matter after your death? We have a tendency to forget the fleeting nature of life. I really like Jonathan Edwards, his perspective that's seen in his resolutions. And you wrote all these resolutions as a young young boy, and he tried to live by them. But you see some repetitive refrains in some of those resolutions. And I'm going to read quickly 7, 9, and 17 to you. 7, 9, and 17. This is what he said. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number 9 says, Resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death i um, been listening to a book on CD by Al Mohler, Conviction to Lead. And in one of the last chapters, he talks about on his desk, he has a skull. That sounds so weird. You know, can you imagine? Can you guys imagine having a skull on my desk, walking around? What are And so he's had kind of reactions from people like, is this some Halloween decoration or what's going on? And so he talks about how historically many theologians had skulls in their offices. And the purpose was to remind them of death. Remind them of death. Sounds so morbid, doesn't it? I mean, to think of death like that. But the point is, is to live life in reference to the fact that life like this will not last forever. So what are you doing with your time? What difference is being made? Re- re- on re- Resolution 17, he says, resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Live in such a way that when I die, I'll be happy with the way I lived. You think about that. It's really, and again, you know, you can't take this to too much of an extreme, but when you're dying, you're going to be like, man, I wish I put five more hours in at work. You know, <laughs> I wish I worked overtime just eight more weeks. You know, I wish I, no, it's like, I wish I spent more time with my family. I wish I invested more in my kids. I wish I prayed more. I wish I gave more. You the It's a transforming perspective to think along those lines. So many things that we think are permanent really are not. Charles de Gaulle famously said, The cemetery is full of indispensable people. The cemetery is full of indispensable people. So do you ever think about what will really last? At the end of the day, day, what will really last into eternity is only those things will will Persist. Only those things done for God's glory will last. At the heart of things that we're called to do is to tell others about Jesus and to help them grow in their relationship with Him, to make disciples. Think about it this way. If through the course of your life you impacted even just one solitary soul to come to know Jesus and to grow in relationship with Him, is the life worth it? If you impact one life for eternity... Versus making billions of dollars. Which one's worth more in eternity? What motivates our service? You see, what's so glorious about this is it says that Jesus is personally invested in the fruitfulness of His friends. My friends will be fruitful and they will make enduring fruit. He cares about the fruitfulness of His children, of His friends. And He's assured us that He's going to make that fruit Endure. Galatians six 6.9 Let us not lose heart in doing good for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Let me propose this as something for you to ponder. You Think about what mark do you want to leave on the world? How about considering a mark that is measured or considered in light of eternity? How about trying to impact the lives of people, by making them ready for the world to come, desiring that they be granted eternal life and that they be assured a place in the new heavens and new earth. Friendship also here involves help and assistance and aid. I would be completely foolish if I hired a teacher here at our school who had little experience and little knowledge of teaching. I gave them no tools, no curriculum, and no help. If so, I would be a horrible boss and a horrible friend. You see, Jesus calls us friends, and he gives us a task that's far beyond our ability. I think that's on purpose. Why? So we're dependent on him. And then he matches the task with aid sufficient to the task. He says, whatever you need, look at the end of verse 16, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. The Father loves His Son in such a way that all those who do His Son's bidding will have the Father's provision. Or as the famous quote from Hudson Taylor goes, God's work done God's way never lacks God's supply. God's work done God's way never lacks God's supply. So let us not be found prayerless. Jesus' promise here of the Father's supply comes as we ask the Father... In Jesus' name, this is our hope of spiritual fruitfulness and success in the task that Jesus has given us. Point two, friendship involves knowledge. Not only involves choice, but it involves knowledge. And friendship grows as knowledge grows. Have you ever heard a child say among a group of friends, Secrets don't make friends. Have you ever heard that? Have you as an adult ever said that to someone else who's sitting at the table with you? Obviously, the phrase has limits, but there are some things, there's some truth to what is being said here. The reason why you normally say that is it usually comes up in a gathering where there's a gathering of people, and then all of a sudden, two people out of the group start talking to each other in hushed tones, not allowing the rest of the group to hear what they're talking about. Now, why does someone say at that moment, secrets don't make friends? Well, because in that moment, they feel left out. <laughs> they feel excluded from some conversation. And they start to become very introspective. Is it because they don't trust me? Do they not like me? Are they talking about me? Right? All these kinds of conspiracy theories start rifling through our minds. So we say things like secrets don't make friends. Point is that friends share knowledge of one another. And they give behind-the-scenes information. Abraham is called a friend of God. We had that read in Isaiah 41. Abraham's called a friend of God. Moses is spoken to by God as a man speaks to his friend. Exodus 33:11. Both of these men have this relationship of friendship with God. And what's interesting in both cases is that both men were granted extraordinary access to God. They were made privy to God's plans before they even came to pass. God calls them friends. Deepening friendship involves greater transparency and openness. Communication that gets more and more rich and deep. It involves knowing not only the what of what my friend is doing, but the why of what my friend is doing. It's knowing the the behind-the-scenes stuff. Why do we find newlywed games so fun and entertaining? Well, because some people enter into marriage, sadly, with not much information about the other person, But the other part of it is, there are some things you'll only know by being married to them for a long time. You just won't know that if you've only been married for a little while. Any agreement from that from our older couples in the room who've been married for a while? Discovered any new things longer down the line than you knew at first? Absolutely. But why is it not so funny when you see a not-so-newlywed game happening? Usually the responses between the couples isn't so jovial and happy. Because at that point, both he and her think, you should know that about me by now, right? You should know that about me by now. How long have we known each other? Why don't you know that about me now? What's happened? Well, there's a certain expectation that with more time together that you'd know each other better. Although we all know that that doesn't necessarily always correlate, not just quantity of time, but quality of time. How do we use the time that we have? But certainly the closer the friendship, the more friends know each other. For those of us who are married, there should be no better friend than your spouse. Lee and I have been now married for nine years together, and we've certainly grown in knowledge of one another over those years. That knowledge leads to a deepening of friendship and further transparency and closeness. Use the word Intimacy, and sometimes it's used in physical ways, but it certainly can refer to that. But it also refers to involve, you know, sharing thoughts and emotions and hopes and dreams and aspirations and successes and failures and frustrations and joys. All of these, heartaches, sharing all of these with one another, right? And this is true. If you're getting, you know, a burger from McDonald's. Not that I would ever go to McDonald's, but if you go to McDonald's and you happen to be getting a burger, or someone else, one of my friends is at McDonald's and they're getting a burger, you don't, you know, they ask how you're doing, you don't usually just outpour like, you know, a huge gushing, oh, this is all who I am and all the rest, right? It would be inappropriate to the moment. Now, I say that sometimes we are a little bit fake with one another. We can be, work a little bit better at that. But there are times and places, and there are people, right? That's something I would do with someone who's closer and knows me. And there's friendship and there's established relationship. So we see that happening. There's increased knowledge with friendship. So Jesus says to him, no longer do I call you slaves. I've called you friends. A slave is told what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. But it's not his place to ask why. A slave doesn't go, why? (laughs) That doesn't work. But a friend is told why. A friend shares the hopes and plans and goals and dreams and aspirations. They're part of the planning process. They know the behind-the-scenes stuff. They not they know not only the decision, but the reasoning process. A friend is a confidant, one who you can trust with your thoughts and feelings. I believe that what Jesus is saying here is that He's treating us... As friends, not as slaves. He's giving us the behind-the-scenes stuff. He says, I've told you what all that my Father's told me. I've, I've revealed to you. I've told you. I think even throughout the course of history and the, the relationship of progressive revelation, as God has revealed more and more, He has changed a little bit in the way He guides His people. Now, some of us today might like a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night, Right? Just like, okay, Lord, which way do I go today? You know, I'll just follow the fire, and I'll follow the cloud, wherever it goes. You know, some of us want that kind of thing. But I think, you know, that's how you would treat a child. Like, a child needs, needs to learn just this is what you need to do, and this is what you need to do it immediately and without questioning. And, you know, if one of my children says, I say, clean your bed, and they go, why? There's a problem, right? Clean the bed. I told you to do something. You just need to do it. But as they get older, there's a transition in the relationship, right? Because eventually, my child also becomes more and more my friend, right? They get out of the house. We now have a different relationship. Before it was more authority. Later on, it becomes more influence. There's a change of that. Reach up in your child's heart. Really excellent on this point. Jesus' authority in no way is diminished. But what he's saying here is, I'm giving you the behind the scenes. I'm not treating you like slaves. I'm not just giving you commands. I'm giving you reasons. Isn't it amazing how God does that? Does God have to tell us why? No. He's God. (laughs) He can command whatever, and we do it. That's all we should do. Yes, sir. We'll do it. But God is so gracious and He reasons with us. And He gives us reasons why He does what He does. Third point. Friendship is all about love. Friendship is all about love. Love is commanded and modeled by Jesus. You, you ultimately can't legislate love. Think about it for just a minute. Can you legislate that people love one another? You can give laws that forbid acts of hatred. You can attempt to encourage good behavior. But you can't get someone to love someone else through rules. All of us as imperfect lovers cannot command others to love and it be effectual. But Jesus, he who did everything that love can do, can and has demanded that His friends love one another. His command is accompanied by His example of the thing that He desired from His disciples. Now up to this point, they've seen Jesus teach. They've seen Him provide for the multitudes, bread and fish. They've seen all kinds of miracles from Jesus. And just recently, they experienced Him washing their feet, taking on the role that even slaves and servants would often not be asked to do. They've seen all of this. Yet that was not the full extent to which Jesus would go in showing love to these men. By the time that John wrote this Gospel, it would be plain to him just as much as it is plain to us that Jesus' greatest act of service and love was still about to take place. Foot washing was merely a prelude to what was about to happen. An even deeper humiliation. An even greater service Jesus would lay down his own life for his friends. With that act, Jesus would forever reinforce the lengths to which love will go. A friend will give all, even his own life, for his friends. Therefore, love is obedient and self-sacrificing. Jesus calls us to love as he has loved. If you love this way, no other rule is needed. Some commentators have said, when you get to like the, the greatest commandment. You know, Jesus asks, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The commentators said, there's really just one rule. What's the one rule? Love God with everything. And if you do that, the rest is all commentary, right? The rest of the scriptures is just describing what does that mean? The sad thing is, because of our fallen sinful nature, we're in need of clarification." Because otherwise, we'd love to make up what that means. So God provides us a further explanation as to what He means when He says, Love Him with everything. And we need more than explanation. We also need exhortation, and we need example, and we need empowerment. We need all of those things in order to actually obey the command that's been given to us. Jesus was obedient to the Father, however, in everything and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die in the place that he chose his friends. And note this, he chose them to be friends because they were not his friends. Romans 5, 8-10, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see, Jesus went even a step further. He says, love Shows itself by giving of your own life for your friend. Jesus did it for his enemies. He laid down his life for his enemies. I've used the analogy before. God the Father giving his son for rebels. is kind of like me offering up Joel, my son, for someone who hates me. I love my son. You think I'm going to kill my son for this guy who hates me? But That's exactly what God the Father did. He gave up. His Son, on behalf of wicked rebels. Because all of us are that. We either are still that, or we're once that. But all of us, at one time at least, are rebels, hating God. And even though we were enemies, Christ died for us. And even now, often we show ourselves to be quite unfriendly, yet Jesus loves us. We need to be reminded of that. So when people around us are unfriendly towards us, instead of becoming offended by their unfriendliness, let's remind ourselves, how often am I I unfriendly towards Jesus, and yet He is still friendly towards me? Understand that being willing to lay down your life for another also shows itself in being willing to live your life for another. (laughs) Don't get caught in this trap. Well, I would gladly die for my family, but I'll give them none of my time now. Oh, 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 I would take a bullet for any of my children. But I won't read the Bible to them at night. Oh, I'll do anything. I'll die for everyone. But meanwhile, I won't invest any of my time in helping anyone. See, there's a problem there. If you're willing to sacrifice yourself, your very life, that means it will also show itself while you're living in self-sacrificing service. Considering the needs of others is more important than your own. And remember... We love only because He first loved us. We're called to love God with all heart, mind, soul, and strength, neighbors, ourselves. But such a mindset and attitude and action is impossible prior to God not first loving us first. He has to love us first in order for us to love Him and to love others in that way. Dear Christian brother or sister, for just a moment, as we're about to leave, I want you to ponder The wonder of wonders that Jesus makes us His friends. He who is our Savior and Lord calls us His friend. What a gracious condescension. What humility and grace and mercy and love. Jesus chose us, unworthy as we are, to be His friends. He pursued us, and He wooed us, and He changed us. Jesus has revealed to His friends His Father's thoughts. He's brought us into the holiest and most sublime of counsels. He's loved us, giving even His own life in our stead. And Jesus, the friend of sinners, will never abandon His own. We've all had friendships in which they've maybe not gone well. Perhaps we have felt abandoned or left alone at times or felt betrayed. But Jesus will never abandon His friends. He'll never leave or forsake them. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden? Cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Blessed Savior, thou hast promised. Thou wilt all our burdens bear. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to thee in earnest prayer. Soon in glory, bright unclouded, there will be no need for prayer. Rapture, praise, and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the great and glorious friend that we have in Jesus. To think that You call us friend. And I pray that a contemplation of that would impact our friendships. Lord, strengthen the friendships that already exist. Help us to think of others before ourselves. Help us to strive towards their eternal benefit. Lord, may it also encourage us to befriend others, to reach out to others. Maybe there's a coworker who works at a cubicle next to us or an office next to us that we need to reach out and befriend. Maybe there's another mom with children that we meet at a park and there needs to be a reaching out and a choosing to reach out to them. Maybe it's a next door neighbor that we need to be purposeful, to befriend, to choose to look into knowing them better and to make ourselves known better to them as well. Help us to love. Help us to show the love that You have shown to us. We know we can only give what has first been given to us. And so please, fill our hearts to overflowing with Your love that we might share that with others around us. We pray all this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.